Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Buzz from Bank Automation News. I'm JJ Hornblast, and I'm pleased to be joined by Lorraine Lawson and Aaron Marsh from the BAN team. Welcome to both of you. Um, we are pleased to have a, um, a, a good program for you today to talk about what's happening in, in uh, banking automation. And uh, first, I want to uh, thank our sponsors for their support, and that's Glia and Volante uh, for their support. So thank you to them. And we're going to talk about a few things going on in the banking automation world uh, before giving you a clue into what we're going to be covering next year. The first uh, item on our docket uh, relates to some news that's uh, been uh, that's come across the uh, technology sector in general. And that is uh, the news today that uh, Twitter has uh, formed a crypto team. And recently, Tim Cook spoke positively about Apple getting into uh, cryptocurrency um, activities. So the question relates to uh, where banks fit into this. And uh, I know, Lorraine, you've been looking at crypto investment in general. So let lay the, the groundwork for us, and then uh, perhaps we can uh, talk out, you know, where is it that banks should be uh, playing a role in uh, the crypto sector? Well, actually, Aaron's done a lot of the reporting on that, so I might let him start. Um, but we do know, for instance, that even small banks and credit unions are looking at this. So obviously the big banks as well. Um, so we're monitoring that, and Aaron's been covering that, so I'll let him start. Okay, sure, Lorraine. Um, well, I mean, I would say that that as a, as a backdrop for all of this, you have seen an awful lot of consumer interest in this lately, um, in crypto. Even, even if, you know, they, they may not even understand it, they've heard about um, crypto sort of as an investment, they've watched the values of Bitcoin um, sort of skyrocket and people are interested. Um, and these customers, um, by and large, you know, they, they're looking for access to cryptocurrency. They want it, they want to buy it, uh, they want to buy it and uh, maybe have custody services. They want to trade. Um, and they, so they look at it particularly as an investment. Um, and they're having to go through crypto exchanges. Um, and these, these entities that, you know, are, are relatively new to them, they don't um, necessarily know and trust them you know, you know, and the, and the largest of those being Coinbase, and that's, you know, becoming something of a household name, but they still prefer, uh, many consumers are, are saying they would prefer to get um, access to cryptocurrency trading through, uh, through their bank, through the, you know, their, their trusted financial institution. So I think that's really kind of been a driver for banks to, to begin to look at this, um, is, is just, you know, to provide a service that their customers um, are asking for, they're looking for. So they're going to, you know, they're looking at how they can get involved, who they need to, you know, how they can set this up to, to provide this kind of access. Um, and Lorraine, as you mentioned, um, I think we've seen some activity um, among, you know, particularly like community and, and smaller banks, regional banks, um, looking at providing these services, where, whereas the, you know, some larger banks are also getting involved um, and providing like crypto investment um, and custody services uh, to you know, particular investors. So um, their banks are kind of still feeling this out a little bit, but we've seen, we've seen some movement. 
One of the, the things I found interesting, uh, sorry, is that uh, there are a lot of companies springing up right now to help banks get on there. Uh, in Money 2020, I talked to NIDIG, uh, which is a white label offering that will allow banks to sort of brand crypto as their own offering, even though it's all going through their technology. So, and then this week also, Aaron, I believe you, you saw a consultancy has risen up uh, to help banks go to crypto. So obviously it's a busy space right now. Well, what's interesting is, is that crypto really has, really straddles the line between an asset and an investment. So historically, banks have stored your assets, right? Your, your money, I mean, they, in the most fundamental way. Um, but, and, and certainly currency could be, dollars could be an investment. People can buy dollars as, as an investment. But generally speaking, it, it is, it's, it's an asset. Um, in, in the case of cryptocurrency, it, it really, you know, could just as easily be an investment and many people view it that way. And that's, I think it's also making its way into, uh, treasury strategies for banks where they're looking at, at cryptocurrency as a potential investment opportunity. And so that makes for a very... A, a different dynamic for most, you know, bread and butter banks, which is they're they're now getting into uh, a situation where it's they're they're holding the currency, but they're also acting as a custodian uh, potentially for the investment. And I wonder whether that, you know, what the implications are of that. I mean, we we've had a you know we've had the Glass Steagall Act. Uh, in, in this country to, which we've done away with, but, but we've historically banks have, have uh, in, recent, in recent decades have, have not been engaged in brokerage operations or at least have had firewalls between their brokerage operations and their retail banking or commercial banking ventures. I mean, how does this change that? Does it, does it matter? I, I you know, what do you think? I think regulators are really struggling with this. Um, and obviously the focus varies by administration. So apparently what I heard at Money 2020 is that last administration was more interested in pursuing, say, for instance, a CBDC than this administration is. I don't know if that's true, but what I can tell you is that it seems to me with when it comes to finances, uh, regulators are always a day and a dollar short. <laughs> Um, they lag behind. And I think that's going to happen with crypto. I, that's just my personal opinion, obviously. But uh, you see the regulators are calling for, I mean, recently they, they issued a statement saying they, you know, we need to do something about crypto, but there doesn't seem to be any real leadership around that or um, driving that regulation. Well, maybe we should, maybe it's good to sort of talk about some blockchain um, use cases, because that might be an extension of cryptocurrency in some way, or at least it, it, at least it can drive, uh, it could be a segue uh, into, into crypto asset engagement. So, Absolutely. I think it's important to understand blockchain is foundational to crypto, but crypto is not foundational to blockchain. I mean, it's enabling technology. 
But what it does really well is it keeps track of contracts. It keeps track of who bought what, who did what. So obviously they're looking at using it for financial services. This is CB Insights uh, view on how it could disrupt finance or be a massive opportunity for finance. And of course, payments is up there. Um, by establishing a decentralized ledger for payments, blockchain could facilitate faster payments at lower fees than banks, it says. Um, another way that banks could be using it or financial services could be using it is through clearance and settlement systems. So distributed ledgers can reduce operational costs and uh, are, are more closely aligned with real-time transactions. It could also be used for fundraising, securities, loans and credits, and trade financing, according to CB Insights. So there's- well, Again, it kind of broaches over into kind of the brokerage custody investment dynamic. Um, I guess the underlying implication is potentially that um, you're going to see banks pushing into new areas of business that maybe historically they may not have been engaged in um, to uh, just because of the changing nature of, you know, the, the, the changes that are happening within their customer base. I mean, if, 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 it, if a wide breadth of their customers are now investing in, in crypto, I guess they have to, they have to recognize that. Yes. And it's interesting. Uh, you know, I love to troll the patents and I do see several of the big banks doing a lot of blockchain patents. So they're definitely exploring how they can use it, um, but they're not really putting it into play yet as far as we know. Um, on uh, another area of, of uh, product development that has, has really uh, flourished over the last, call it six to 12 months is buy now, pay later. Um, Aaron, you took a deep dive into the BNPL market in Mexico. Um, why BNPL in Mexico? Um, well, it, the, the conditions are right there. Um, you know, just as you said, the, um, you know, BNPL, buy now, pay later, has, has, you know, attracted a lot of attention. It's seen growth this year. It's been appearing you know, in, in articles, it's in the media. And so it, it seems to be a little bit of a media darling right now. Um, so it, one of the things that is predicted in, in terms of BNPL growth is that uh, this may help um, to provide an alternative to credit and, and sort of help reach um, the underserved um, and, and unbanked, you know, those people have sort of been left behind by traditional um, financial services. So it, it presents this alternative um, and potentially very attractive alternative. So you take a country like Mexico, um, and I heard, you know, this is, this is from a BNPL um, company in Mexico now, Pueski. Um, they're saying that, you know, 60% of Mexicans don't have access to banking services and 82% don't own a credit card. Um, and there's a lack of, um, there's a lack of information that, that uh, uh, credit companies and, and financial institutions have lack of credit information um, on Mexicans. So uh, it's, this has provided an opportunity for these companies to step in. Kowalski in particular had a loan type product, like an instant loan product that they launched in 2012. 
And interestingly, they, uh, you know, have, you know, I think provided now something like, um, you know, approaching like 5 million loans, like 4.8 million loans. Um, so, it, you know, they've now been able to sort of, where, where there's a lack of data in, in order to serve credit to these people, they're, they're now looking, harvesting their own data from loan, his, loan um, histories and, uh, and, and are now able to use that in, in uh, credit determination. So what we're seeing is, yes, it's buy now, pay later, um, you know, maybe more, uh, more appropriately, compra ahora, um, paga después. So same thing, you know, buy now, pay later. Um, but it's, it seems to be flourishing, as you said. But in Mexico, the conditions just seem to be right for this to take off. Well, there were two things that sort of struck me about that. Um, the first is, is clearly there's a, a cultural um, inclination towards installment payment uh, in Mexico, which we have that to some degree in the United States, but it seemed like from your reporting that it's maybe more prevalent in Mexico. Uh, I don't know if you would agree or disagree with that. Um, the other point that was kind of interesting to me is that, uh, and you know, Lorraine, tell me if you agree with this. I, I think BMPL for or many of the providers of uh, BNPL in the U.S. position it as a card replacement option, um, and in Mexico, Aaron, you're talking about it. You know, they're talking about it as more of a a, a financing uh, service to the underserved, and that has a completely different risk dynamic than just a credit card replacement at the POS. And I wonder whether um, there's a, a greater underlying risk there in, the, in, in Mexico that perhaps the BMPL providers are not uh, necessarily you know, getting on top of. I have heard about that. In fact, that's that's one of the research aspects that you you hear. It's sort of the risk involved with BNPL um, is, you know, looking at looking at defaults, looking at late payments, um, looking at problems that arise within the business model. Um, and yes, I mean that's certainly a concern. That's got to be relevant as well in Mexico. If you you know you've got similar kinds of conditions, and then you just have more of it or a greater percentage of it. That's right. something to watch. Um, right. Maybe maybe that's going to come up. So that could be a, a, a difference in the in the markets for that product, Mexico versus the United States, uh, or maybe it's just that uh, BMPL in the U.S. has been marketed as a credit card replacement, but actually it's more uh, it's better suited for the underserved. It could be. Yeah, I think it makes sense for, I mean, who else is going to need installment payments on some of this stuff other than the underserved and in, in credit? <laughs> um, and I will say that Banel Pay Later companies have told us that they uh, generally have loss rates of one to two percent. Now that's in the U.S., so that's, you know, that's not bad. Um, 
And she has seen data, let's see, and they have, they also said that 20% of BNPL borrowers have missed a payment, so. Um, right, I guess it also matters what the dollar amount of losses are, you know, as a percentage <laughs> of the total outstandings. Maybe it's the big items that are defaulting. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing, the other thing with BNPL is it's um, it's partly about perception. Mm -hmm. um, you you have this element with the unbanked or the underserved by the present financial system, um, and they may have like a negative view of uh, of banks and, and and traditional financial institutions. So you're kind of presenting them something that may be more attractive to them, more maybe more palatable in in some way. Um, so they say, well, you know what, instead of pursuing this avenue, you know, for financing, I like this. And it's a matter of perception. Um, so, you know, there is that element that may be at, at work here, too. Sure. Uh, one more topic we wanted to cover today was uh, a new product offering or no, sorry, new new performance results from BMO uh, Harris Bank on its cloud initiative that started. It was. Uh, four years ago, Lorraine? Five years ago. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure. 2015, I think. Well, that's when they acquired G. Almost. I'm not sure. Uh, I don't remember the year. Sorry. Um, but but I can tell you what it was. BMO decided to that it was going to adopt a cloud-first strategy. But one thing that was really smart about the way they did it was that they were going to focus on automation and cleaning up the process, not just moving it to the cloud. So I talked this week with their uh, head of GE's, or, or their head of, sorry, of uh, finance transportation. The, let me just look at that. Sorry, I'm forgetting all the BNPL stuff has got me all excited here. Um, Lawrence Wan, the chief architect and innovation officer of BMO's financial group. And he talked about how their transportation finance group has moved to the cloud and automated along the way to, and the result was a savings of 30% uh, year over year on their cost. So that's a significant savings. And one of the things that was interesting to me was this wasn't just an automation of processes, but it was an automation of their IT processes in particular. So um, whereas they're running these 70 apps, they moved this portfolio to the cloud, whereas if they had have had it as they did before on a dedicated center, they would have had to scale up and bring in a systems engineer and a network engineer. And anytime they wanted to scale up, they'd have to redo the whole environment. Um, they've moved to Amazon Web Services, which allows you to create templates of your environment that you want and scale easier. So no longer do they have to bring in the network engineer and the systems engineer to do that. They just apply a template and it will scale that app automatically for them. Those are good metrics. What do we have on tap for next week, Lorraine and Aaron? Well, I'm working on a five questions with Atul Verma, who is the CIO and US personal and business banking for BMO. Um, I'm also looking into um, a couple of podcasts. So that should be fun. Yeah. Um, I think we're going to see a deeper dive into the Microsoft Cloud for Financial Services, um, just a just a horde of, of integration partners, you know, kind of 
jumping in on that. And, and we're going to look at some of those potential benefits, what they might mean for banks, um, and maybe what some of those integrations partners are doing in particular. Great. Uh, well, we, uh, we are looking forward to that. And we're looking forward to seeing all of you at uh, bankautomationnews.com. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Buzz and our weekly wrap for what's going on in banking automation. It's kind of a, a return to uh, the weekly wrap. We haven't done this in a while. We're gonna start uh, producing this uh, on a regular basis. So stay tuned and uh, thanks again. We'll see you next time.